So John chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally, they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptising with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. This is God's word. You've heard it all before. You've heard it all before. The politician leaves the front door of their home in an early hour to be confronted by the paparazzi. And the question comes, will you be running for office? Will you stand for the position? No, not this time. No, I'll let someone else do it. I have no intention to stand. But you know what will happen as 24 hours later they stand behind the podium and rehearse the choreographed sentences that their advisors have told them to say on behalf of my advisors and family, it's my honour to stand and run. 24 hours you said you weren't going to, and now you are. You can count on your hand just from 2022 how many times that's happened. You've seen it all before. And it's very easy, like me, to get cynical about the whole process as the candidates want to run for office and they do that by running down their opponents. It's very tiring. This gospel that we're continuing in through this term and on at different parts in the years to come, John's gospel, is very clear about the central person. There are not candidates. There's one central theme, and it's about the person of Jesus Christ. That John, the apostle who writes these sentences, wants us to focus in, to hone in on, to be consumed by, that we might see and understand the glory of Jesus And that's where he begins, chapter 1, verse 1. Look down with me, please, just to recap. Jesus is the Word of God. He's the author, but also he is the meaning of life. Verse 18 of chapter 1. No one has ever seen God, but God the Father has made himself known perfectly through the person of his Son, 
Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, God is fully known and fully knowable. Verse 14, how is that possible of chapter 1? How is God knowable and fully known? Because the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. Now, one of the things about living on a main road is that it's quite noisy. It's quite noisy because it's uh, one of the main routes that ambulances and police cars and fire engines use to get from A to B. And so very often we hear sirens and you get to know the different pitch and tone of the uh, emergency services as they zoom by. Sometimes you, you, you hear the scream of the ambulance. And sometimes on, on my better days, I'm tempted to pray and do pray very quickly for the person either in the back or to whom they're going to. Sometimes there's a different pitch and there's a screech, not just of a, a handbrake turn, but it's the police getting to where they need to get to. And we hope they get there quickly. On rare occasions, they both work together. And there's the police escort that's necessary for the ambulance. Red lights are carefully navigated. They look out for passers-by. But the police zoom past and behind them following on their coattails, as it were, is an ambulance. Now that's a helpful analogy, I think, for what has happened in the first 18 sentences of John chapter 1. John introduces us to the person of Jesus, the word of God. But if you notice, there's another character that we focus in on. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. John introduces us to his namesake, John the Baptist. We meet Jesus, verses 1 to 5, verse 6, from the eternal, from the cosmic, from the grand. We then focus in on one person, chapter 1, verse 6, who's John the Baptist. What does he do? Verse 7, he came as a witness concerning the light. He came to point to Jesus. Verse 8, very clearly, John the Baptist was not the light himself. Verse 9, that light was coming. And we're waiting for someone, sentence 15 of chapter 1, someone who is greater than I am, says John the Baptist. In other words, John is the police car leading the ambulance. He's preparing. He's alerting. He's sounding a warning for the person of Jesus Christ. Are you the one that we're waiting for? Verse 19 to 23. No, I'm not. 19 to 23, look down. I'm not the prophet that Malachi have said, wait for him. I'm not Elijah who's returned. I'm here to prepare the way for the Lord, for the King, for the Messiah. But John the Baptist had something about him. He had a moral attractiveness. He, he had a, a, a fierce reputation that was growing and people were coming out and, and drawing themselves to him to hear his teaching, to hear his words and what he had to say. And this great sentence that we read in chapter 1, verse 29, is preceded by this uh, disqualifying himself. I'm not the one that you should be looking for. You can come and listen, but there is one coming who's greater than I am. He had a particular way of seeing himself, John the Baptist, but also a particular way of seeing Jesus. You see that in verse 27. Look at how he looks at himself. How does he view himself, John the Baptist? He says, I am unworthy. And then two sentences later, how does he look at Jesus? He says, behold, the Lamb of God. He doesn't say, look at me. He says, behold him. He doesn't say, listen to me. Hear what I've got to say. He says, be consumed by the one who I'm pointing to. I'm just a police car leading the way, but the ambulance is the one that will rescue people, literally. 
Jesus is the saviour of the world. But there's this tremendous strength that he has from knowing who Jesus is. And so, verse 20, he says emphatically twice, he confesses freely. He did not fail to confess. So John the Baptist is a gutsy, God-centered person who's passionate that people would behold and see and be satisfied by the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. I want to focus on that mini sermonette that I've just given you on this view of John the Baptist that he had himself and the view that he had of Jesus and then the character that outflows from that view of self and view of Jesus as we go into this new year. Firstly, his view of himself. How did John the Baptist really see himself? Verse 27. He does not say just, I'm unworthy. Verse 27, he says, I'm unworthy to untie the sandals of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's a pretty extravagant claim that he's saying. There are a lot of laws in the first century about who could untie sandals. It, it was so demeaning and lowly that it was the job of a slave and very few other people deemed to do it. Shoes were stinky and smelly. Roads were very unclean, as we know from other parts of the Bible. It was hard work. It was demeaning and lowly. So John the Baptist, although he was a man of fortitude and courage and boldness, he says, I'm not even worthy to do that. I'm off the scale. I'm not going to uh, do that job. I'm not even worthy to do that. Not because of only his view of himself, but his view of the greatness of Jesus. I'm below even that. I'm less worthy because of the greatness of Jesus, even than a slave. Now, a rabbi could not insist that a disciple do this job, any rabbi, to their followers. And so John the Baptist is comparing himself to say, Jesus is so great, I don't even consider myself a slave-like in relationship to him. Now, given our cultural sensitivities, of which there are many and increasing, we might say that's pretty strong statements. How can you say something about yourself? His problem, clearly, is one of low self-esteem. He needs to go and get some help and resources. He needs to think more positively about himself and the power of positive thinking and so on. But I don't think that's our problem. Our main problem is not that we despise ourselves, but it's rather that we don't see the greatness of Jesus. John the Baptist understood who he was because he compared himself with the eternal Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm unworthy to even untie the sandals upon his feet. He's so great. John the Baptist said of himself, I think, I don't care what you think about me. I don't even care what I think about me. I only care what God and Christ think. So behold, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What's so important is not how I view myself, it's how I view myself in relation to the King of the universe. It's the most important thing. If you come to him on the basis of what Jesus has done, then you are his child. Look at verse 12 that we looked at before Christmas. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, God, he gave the right to become children of God. If you believe in the person of Jesus Christ, his finished once and for all eternal work of dying for you on the cross, of being raised on the third day, seated at the right hand in the heavens, you are a child of God this morning. You're welcomed in by God. You're accepted by God in Christ. 
You're forgiven by God and your sins have been paid for and removed from you once and for all. You start 2023 not just with new aspirations but as a new person in Christ. The verdict is in, there's no doubt. There's nothing that can be lost. I don't have to live up to any standard anymore because Jesus has lived the perfect life and I'm accepted by God through his Son. And God's Spirit dwells in my heart. I mean, to get you up in the morning is not caffeine, as much as you may need it or appreciate it. There are three ways by which you can be driven, by which you can go into the new year or a new day and you want to get stuff done. You can be driven by what other people will say about you. If I don't turn up, my boss will. If I don't turn up, I'll let them down. If I don't turn up, they will think ill of me. You can be driven like that. You can be driven by your own evaluation of yourself. No, I'm a good worker and I want other people to recognise that. I want to show you how great a how great a parent I am. I want to show you how great a grandparent I am by doing this stuff. One's driven by the outside, one's driven by the inside. Here's the third motivation that only a Christian can have. Or you can be driven by what God says about you in Christ and by what the Holy Spirit brings to bear, that truth of who you are in Christ as it comes to your own understanding in your heart and mind. If that drives you about who you are in Christ, you're driven by holy God-centered motivations. The world can say what they want about me. I can misunderstand who I am in Christ, but God the Father loves me. God the Son died for me. God the Holy Spirit lives in me. All things work for my good, and I've got the hope of glory on the first day of a new year. Here's John the Baptist, and he says, verse 27, I know that I'm unworthy. I know that I'm lowly. But this is what God thinks about me, and it's good enough for me. I'm a new person. I have a new identity. His, the audience of one, his opinion is the only one that truly matters. And so I can lay down the burden of impressing other people. I'm not Elijah, I'm not Malachi, but one is coming. I'm just the warm-up act. There's one is coming and his glory will satisfy your heart and meet your every need. I am unworthy because he is so great and he is so glorious. And so he lays down his life. He lays down his life in service of the king. I've been trying to be my own saviour for too long, as we all have. I've been trying to be my own ruler for so long. But one is coming, and when you see him, he will satisfy the deep longings of your heart. And he will make you right with God, and you will be a child of the king. Behold, the Lamb of God. I'm going to set my eyes not on myself, not on my own achievement, not on other people's eyes as they give me approval or disapproving looks. I'm going to set my heart's affections on who I am in Christ. And that's going to motivate me and that's going to drive me. And that's where I want you to look, says John the Baptist, as he stops looking at himself, verse 27. He says, my gaze, and I want everybody's gaze to look at him. And that's where he looks next, his view of Jesus Point number two, his view, not of himself now, but his view of Jesus. Verse 29, this famous sentence, Behold the Lamb of God. Now that's the secret of John's confidence. His self-understanding is only understood to the degree that he understands who he is in Christ. His boldness is not that Jesus is a moral teacher or that he's a fine example to follow. He says, behold. He says, gaze at. He says, be satisfied in. He says, savor. 
wonder at who the person is coming over the hill. His name is Jesus. But more importantly, he is the Lamb of God. And that's just loaded with Old Testament meaning. Let's look at that briefly. When we say Jesus is the Lamb of God, let me remind you or show you for the first time, Jesus is the substitute, says John the Baptist. He's the substitute and he does that voluntarily. And he draws right from the beginning of the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 22, you have Abraham right towards the end of his life with his son Isaac ascending Mount Moriah, Genesis chapter 22. And Isaac says to his father, Daddy, Dad, the fire is here, the wood is here, you've got the sharp implement as well, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, Son, Isaac, God himself will provide a lamb. God himself will provide a substitute. And he does. As the fire is made for the sacrificial offering of Isaac to be laid upon it, as the knife is about to come down in great obedience to God, trusting that he would raise him from the dead if he needed to and if he wanted to, there is a ram caught in a thicket. Father, what are you doing? Where's the sacrifice? Son, God himself will provide a lamb. And if he does that, you won't have to die. Then we can fast forward to Exodus chapter 12, to the theme of Passover. God is promising his people who cry out in mercy to him, having lived in terrible conditions, I will rescue you, but you have to trust me. And there has to be blood upon the lintels of your home. And the angel of death will see the blood and will pass over. But you must sacrifice a lamb. If a lamb is slain, if a lamb dies in your place, then you will be spared. And then in this glorious section of the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, he speaks and says, there is someone who will come. God will send a king, but he's a king that you won't recognize. Nothing special about him. And he will die for the sins of the world. And on him our sins will be laid. And by his life we will receive healing. And as a lamb before his shearers is silent, so too he will not open his mouth. You have all this illusion from the Old Testament and not one person can put it together. Not one person can join the dots. Not one person could solve the mystery. Just imagine how John the Baptist felt when by divine revelation, God by the Holy Spirit opened up his mind to understand, to join the dots, to connect the pieces. And he looks on the hillside and says, Jesus, the Lamb, behold He's the Lamb of God. He's not a lamb. He's the one that we've been waiting for. He's the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. The Israelites in the Old Testament were not saved by a a woolly quadruped's life. It was predictive text. It was prediction of the Lamb of God who would save them from their sins. Just imagine how John the Baptist felt. His heart must have burned. Not a lamb, the Lamb. The Lamb of God. Now I get it. He's the reason for all those woolly sacrifices in the Old Testament. People were not saved by just obedience. They were saved by obedience in God's provision and in his promises. The Lamb of God in place of our firstborn was actually God's firstborn. That's why our sons were saved. Because God would not spare his only son. 
That one stands in my place. He's done everything on my behalf. He's paid for everything that I owe. Everything. And he stands in my place. And he did it voluntarily. What's the big thing about the lamb? Okay, if he's a sacrifice, well, how do lambs die? They die silently. They just lay there before the shepherd. Bulls are sacrificed. Ghosts are sacrificed. But lambs don't bite. Lambs don't scratch. They don't run away. They just lie there. And then their life is taken. And that's the point. Jesus was a voluntary sacrifice. He was the lamb of God. No one took his life. He willingly gave it up for the sins of the world. Think of Jesus as the lamb of God in Gethsemane. He had every chance to turn back. And yet he didn't. He could have gotten up and said, why should I leave my infinite glory for this lot? They can't even stay awake. They won't even pray for me. They'll never pay me back. They've not asked me to come. But he didn't. He didn't. Not my will, but yours be done. He's a voluntary sacrifice for the sins of the world. Father, he said in the garden, I will be the lamb. I will be your lamb. I will go. It's astonishing. Is the first Adam in the first garden in the Bible, in the opening pages, and God says to, the, says to Adam, Obey me and you will live. Obey me, Adam, and you will live. God came to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane and said to his son, Obey me and I will crush you for the sins of the world. And Jesus Christ, the second Adam, said, Okay, for your glory and for their good, I will obey you even unto death. Give yourself to me and all my wrath will be poured onto you. And Jesus says, I will be the lamb. And here's John the Baptist, chapter 1, verse 29. And he understands to some degree all of the Old Testament by divine revelation. And he says, not, he does not say, look, a lamb. Here's another one. No, no, he says, look, the lamb of God. There's no other. Once and for all, the lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the world. And it changes John the Baptist. In verse 20, he confesses freely. I pointed that out. It's there two times. If you read the other Gospels, you see John the Baptist is a man of, of quite a lot of courage. He has a diet that is unique. He has clothes that were richy and scratchy. But when he comes before Herod and loses his life, his head is removed from his shoulders. Before that happens, he speaks with courage and says, You're a nasty piece of work, Herod. You should not be behaving this way. You should be not treating women like that. He was imprisoned, he was beheaded, but he was a fearless leader. Where did that courage come from? It came because he understood that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and it made him a person who was wonderfully approachable. People were drawn to him and yet he's wonderfully resistant as well and resilient rather. It's his view of himself, his view of Christ that changed him. Now what sort of character can that create as we close in conclusion there are always when we gather two groups of people you're either here this morning and you're trusting you're relying in yourself you think you'll measure up you think you'll be good enough or you're trusting in Christ you realize you're weak and insufficient and you need a rescuer there's only two groups of people really when the church is gathered some of you need to be reminded or understand for the first time chapter 1 verse 12 it's very serious in John's gospel, yet to all who received him. 
To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Some of us this morning on the first day of a new year, what a lovely day for this to happen. Some of us need to cross over from trusting in ourselves to trusting in Jesus. To saying no to self-rule, no to self-reliance. And we need to be consumed with the importance and the person of Jesus who died for our sake. So we're no longer looking for ladders to climb to heaven. Jesus is the bridge. He's the bridge from heaven to earth and from our self-reliance to God's sufficiency. Some of us need to trust him for the first time. Here's how you can tell if you say, in answer to this question, are you a Christian this morning? How are you a Christian in 2023? If you say, well, I'm going to be a better Christian than last year. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to read more. I'm going to pray more carefully. I'm going to give more. I'm going to do more. Friends, I don't think you're a Christian this morning. And I say that very carefully. If you say, I'm going to do more, I'm trying, that means you're not a Christian this morning. Christians don't try. They take all their weakness and all their need, and every single day, they lay it at the sufficient feet of Jesus and stay and remain in the shadow of the cross. I am unworthy, he is worthy. I am insufficient, I cannot rule my life. He is gracious and kind and merciful. Jesus, the king of the universe, is also the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And even this morning, on the first day of a new year, you could say no to my confidence. My confidence is now in him. He died for me. He was sacrificed in my place. My sins I carry no longer. They are now carried by Jesus, who's paid the penalty for them, so that now I'm a new person in him. I'm a son and daughter of the king. What a way to start the year. This wonderful transference. Our sins are carried by the king of the universe. He died for our sake and in our place. He's the lamb of God. You repent of your self-centeredness and self-reliance, and you turn to Jesus in newness of life, and hope and joy. I lay down my self-confidence. I am now dependent in humbleness on Jesus, the King of the cosmos. He's my lamb. Behold my lamb, the lamb, who takes away my sins. But Christian friends, to you, there have been times, have there not, in your life, perhaps when you're newly converted, you've become a Christian for the first time and the last time. And there's times you've become so close to Jesus, you delight in him, you're amazed by him, you enjoy him, you're, just, you're full of gratitude and you want to share what he's done in your life. It's wonderful. I don't care what people say or think. I love Jesus and there's nothing he cannot ask of me. I don't care how I view myself. I'm now a new person because what I'm most attentive to of who I am in him. I'm a new person. Say what you like about me. But those moments are long gone. You're now consumed by guilt and shame. You've forgotten who you are in Christ, in him. And why not today pray afresh, reminding yourself of what Jesus has done for you, who he is, what he's done. If Jesus died for me, if he gave his life for me without complaint, and I can take my little problems of my life, and I can bear them, I can put one foot in front of the other without complaint, living wholly dependent upon him. It removes self-pity, 
You're no longer number one. You're no longer self-absorbed. You're focusing on the person of Jesus. C.S. Lewis put it like this. Humility is not thinking more of yourself or less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. For every one look at yourself, you take a thousand at Jesus or at least ten. You could do that again, couldn't you? Perhaps you've forgotten this morning and you need to say afresh, behold, the Lamb of God, see him dying in the dark for you, see him being raised to life for you, see him sitting ascended for you, pleading on your behalf, working even now. Fall down before him afresh and when you get up, you'll be more like him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, my Lamb who died for me, who was raised to life for me and sits with wounds in heaven for me. And one day I'll see him and we're one year nearer home. I can't wait.